Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a founder that has done it a few times, you know, obviously quite a international, uh, the founder that we're going to have today. So very, very exciting. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Campbell Brown. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Thank you. So originally born in New Zealand. How was life in New Zealand growing up? Oh, it was, look, it was, there was a lot of, um, a lot of beach life, a lot of uh, later in life, a, lo a lot of wine. Um, but look, it's a great place for a kid to grow up, and I miss it dearly. But it's uh, it's great kind of being over here in the Bay Area now. Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, beach and wine, what a great combination. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes not together. Sometimes not together. Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I know that there, you know, like, I mean, growing up, and I'm wondering too, I mean, obviously you have this entrepreneurial drive, so... Is, is anyone in your family, anyone there, you know, that was an entrepreneur too? Yeah. I mean, I think my, my dad was, uh, my mum was, my brother is, my, my sister is. I think we're, I mean, I think New Zealand just in general is, is a nation of entrepreneurs, you know, and, and I think the cool thing with the way in which the world is evolving is that more and more these Kiwis are getting kind of, are getting to do it on, on a global stage, which is, which is just epic to see. And I, and I love seeing it. Very cool. Very cool. And obviously, it took you a little bit, you know, to um, to come here to the U.S. I mean, you did a little yeah. pit stop in London where you met your <laughs> wife. So what, what, what were you doing there in London? Yeah, I, I was working in, in ad tech over there. Um, and it was, look, it was a super fun time. I, I got, you know, I was lucky enough to have a job where I got to travel all around Europe and meet some pretty amazing people and kind of expand my my horizons. I, I was there for seven years and um, kind of got addicted to technology. I guess uh, over in London, and then um, then decided to move back to New Zealand to uh, to kind of reset and um, and have another, have another have another go at something, and and that's kind of when I, I started to get into the startup world. Got it. And obviously, this is the time that uh, you came about with Grab One. So so tell us about Grab One. How do you guys bring it to life? Yeah. So we I met, I met a uh, I met a, um, uh, Shane Bradley who uh, had this idea around. Uh, replicating Groupon at the stage, and at this, you know, this is when Groupon was in its infancy in um, kind of 2009, 2010. And he said, "Look, I think this this idea is going to be big." And I said, "Look, mate, I'm I want to take a, I want to take a risk, and I want to have a, a bet against um, 
a bit on this, I should say. And so we, we started, there was four of us when we started, and then we scaled that to about 150 people pretty quickly and then and then exited that um, kind of after two and a half, three years. But look, it was just such a blast. I've never been in a business so quickly that gets product market fit. Um, and, and, you know, we got out at the right time, which is, which is great, um, but it was a hell of a ride and something that, I mean, there's a lot of things I took from that that I can now apply and I still apply today. So what is the biggest one that you took away from that experience? Uh, just sheer determination and just never giving up, just always going and going. And, and I think that is, um, it doesn't mean that you, you sacrifice time with family. What it means is that, you know, you take those hits and those punches and those low moments and you just keep going. And, and the way I kind of, um, the way I kind of term it is street fighting. Like I'm just a street fighter. I just love getting out there and, and battling and, and, and being smarter than, than other people and moving faster than other people and, and just, but more often than not is just actually taking the hits and getting back up again and just being so bloody determined to, to, um, to move ahead. Of course. And obviously now you're in San Francisco, so different uh, landscape. So how, what is it like to, to, let's say, like run a startup in, in New Zealand? Uh, running a startup in New Zealand is, look, the lifestyle is amazing. Uh, I was getting up and going for paddle boards in the morning and it was, it was, um, it was beautiful. But I think the big difference between, between New Zealand and, and probably the US is, is scale. And, and so coming over to the US, um, my eyes opened up to just the true scale of, of what a startup can actually achieve. And I think in New Zealand, you're probably a little bit isolated from, from that a little bit. I mean, that, that obviously is changing and there's a lot of amazing founders I know in New Zealand who are, who are taking on the world from down there. But Jeep is coming over. I remember my first day in, in the office by myself over here in the US and I just didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, but I quickly learned um, through speaking with other founders you know, what it takes to, to thrive in this environment. So then, so then obviously, I mean, here you guys were at it for about three years, no? A, three, a little bit over three years. So, so it seems yeah. that uh, you guys, you know, came, you know, to the full cycle quite quickly. I mean, why, why did you guys decide to sell? Uh, to, to come over here? What do we do? No, to, to, to sell the business, grab one. Oh, Grab One. Oh, I mean, look, I, I think with Grab One, um, we just saw that the world was changing and that deals were becoming um, commoditized in a way that probably wasn't that beneficial to, um, I guess, to the end consumer being um, the business owner itself. And so when we saw that change, we knew that um, uh, that that we needed to get out. Uh, and look, we had an absolute um, amazing time and we've got some really good mates and still good mates um, from that experience. But yeah, it was just time to get out of that one. Got it. So then after this, you know, like you literally, you know, took some time, you know, to take a look at, uh, you know, what would be the, the next, you know, next in your, in your journey. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and literally, I mean, you, you join another one. So you jump from one to another one. So, so tell us about Online Republic. Yeah, I was, I was kind of, um, you know, I've been messing around for about six months after, after getting out of grab one and, and met an individual called Mike Ballantyne. And, he had started this uh, pretty amazing business with his with his brother uh, Paul, and um, uh, unfortunately Paul passed away. And Mike was kind of looking for um, someone else to come in and help him out, and he had a great support network there already. But um, I just I had a different kind of view on 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 the business and and how um, how we could change it. And so I kind of started doing a day a week there, two days a week, and in the end I just said, look, mate, I'll come and work with you um, and and build this business to a position where we can uh, 
uh, exit it, but also I want to start up a business that is global and I want to start up a business that is going to be the one that we can take a real big run at and one that is going to solve a massive problem for businesses around the world. And so during that time that we were there, that you know, two, two and a half years, is we just fo- I focused heavily on helping the business, but also focusing on what what other business we could build to um, uh, to create when we're inside it or incubate it within this other business. And obviously, this was a you know a pretty a pretty good outcome. I think that the company got acquired for about eighty nine million. So. So, I mean, out of this full cycle that you were able to see, I mean, obviously you came, you know, to the picture a little bit later, but still, you know, like had a, a pretty significant, you know, impact on the business. What was, you know, your biggest takeaway from, 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 this, from this business? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest takeaway from, from this particular business is it was a global business. And I think it started to get me addicted to um, scale. And, and, and let me explain that quickly. Is in New Zealand, when you do a startup and it's New Zealand only, you're selling to four and a half million people. Like that's 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 cool, and you can make good businesses from that. But then when you see the opportunity to sell to Australia, to the US, to Europe, it starts to trigger this whole other um, beast within me that I was like, "There's got to be something bigger." And and that whole sales motion uh, on an international level or a global scale uh, was just so so appealing. And to see how this business was able to do it. Um, was something that was, uh, you know, like I said, really, really addictive for me. And, um, you know, going from four and a half million people to being able to sell to billions of people was definitely a, a massive attraction. Of course, of course. So then, so then obviously, you know, like after, after this experience, you know, once an entrepreneur, as they say, always an entrepreneur. So opportunity comes <laughs> knocking again. So, so, so tell us yeah. about this, this, this knocking happening on the door. Yeah, well, look, there, there was an incessant knocking. And what it was, was we kept on seeing the, like, so Online Republic, we did um, car rentals globally. So for Hertz, for Avis and everything. And it, and it was, uh, look, it was a hell of a ride. It was, it, was, it was great. But we kept on seeing these peaks and troughs in demand. And, and we were going, what the hell? And always retrospectively, we're like, ah, oh, was this this school holiday here? Or it was this um, opening up of this uh a market over here or it was this concert or this conference or or you know the natural disaster that was occurring down in florida and we could never react fast enough and we could never either you know manage the pricing the way that we we could and i said to mike i said mate i've got it i've got an idea i reckon there's got to be a way in which we can um better forecast demand more accurately by understanding the why so why is this happening? But not just retrospectively, but proactively. Um, and so the first thing we actually did, um, we knew that there was this massive event happening in Australia. And we knew 90,000 people were going to this particular location. And we said, well, look, we know 16 days out from this particular um, event or this catalyst is that uh, most of these people are going to be buying um, or renting car rentals. So rather than um, – so the next time that happened, we actually started uh, – buying up as many eyeballs as we can for people searching on car rentals in Brisbane, Brisbane airport car hire. And we saw this massive increase in, in conversion. And our competitors didn't even know what the hell was going on because they didn't understand why. Why were they seeing this demand? And and when was it the best time to kind of um, push go on these ad campaigns? And as soon as we saw the results from that, we knew we had a viable business and then I kind of set about finding a, a co-founder to come with me on that journey. And, and that's kind of how I found a guy called Rob Kern, who was actually at Online Republic, about to leave the business. And I said, mate, 
don't go. I've got an idea. <laughs> and and I think this is going to be a cracker. And I think this is going to be the one, the idea that I've always wanted to, to build a, a massive business around. And, and he's, he's been with me kind of ever since, like just, uh, and he's a terribly nice guy uh, and, and an amazing individual. So obviously, you know, recruiting is, uh, is, is part of it. And, and I know that for you, probably the biggest, uh, you know, HR move that you made was convincing your, your wife, you know, to move the, with the entire <laughs> family to the U.S. So, so I mean, for other, yeah. you know, like folks that maybe are, are thinking about like making this move and, and bringing the entire family here to the U.S., I mean, how did you convince your wife? Yeah, I, I'm super lucky so far on the fact that my wife is, um, she's, she loves an adventure and, and always has. Um, she's far more pragmatic than me, um, uh, slightly lower risk profile, probably a lot lower risk profile. But I, I think my big pitch to, to Emma was I don't want to get to 50 or 60 and think about the what if. I, I want to know that I, you know, we had a crack and, and wouldn't it be cool if we went and lived in another country for a little while? Wouldn't it be cool if the kids got to experience uh, a new culture? And, and I think the thing that really sold it for us is, um, you know, you know, with with your, with your kids, mate, is like one of the biggest lessons you can teach them is adaptability. And, and if I can if I can um, build that into my kids really really early, then I think that that's an amazing thing that they can, um, you know, so anywhere in life they know that they can land in somewhere and they will find it's tough, but they'll be able to get through and adapt and and all that together, mate. I think there's also a bit of just a belligerent kind of attitude like we're just going to do it and um because i remember landing in san francisco going to our our house that was 52 degrees fahrenheit we had no heating so we had to go to another hotel we had to go you know the four of us at the time had to go stay in a hotel room just thinking what the hell have i done <laughs> i've left my you know house in new zealand away and my and the beach and paddleboard and friends and a family but um man i wouldn't have changed it for the world it was just such an awesome thing to do so why why did you want it to come here, you know, to to do this business? Yeah, good question. So I think it's probably because our first customer was Uber. And um that was a really like I mean, I can remember coming over here when we're there's ten of us in the business at the time and Rob and I flew over to meet with um meet with Uber and we were just talking to them and, and telling them about our business and we said, Look, we can automate most of the things that um that you know you're trying to do manually at the moment and and, and so Having that um, that first customer who took a risk on us because we are we were super early at that stage, uh, and then seeing the other sorts of businesses and and the ability where you can build relationships with these customers, it just made a lot of sense. And I think also, you know, the capital access to capital over here is um, is you know whether you like it or not. Um, the Bay Area has a, an immense amount of capital, and with that capital also comes an immense amount of experience as well. So, for me, it was kind of um, you know both the customer and, and kind of the capital as well. Got it. So then, so then, what were some of the next steps? You know, in order to really you know scale this up, and I guess you know before you know going into it deeper, you know, so that the people you know that are listening really get it. What ended up being the business model of Predict? Yeah, I mean, the the business model for us. Um, Look, we made a really, um, we had a bit of a misstep when we first started the business. Um, one which we think was was probably a good thing, but we we were a SaaS, pure SaaS business, and we had a web app, and we were taking this out to these businesses and going, "Isn't this amazing?" They're like, "That's cool," but we 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 really want that intelligence you're showing us in our forecast models. 
we don't want another platform to log into. And so inside about the first six, six months, we we kind of flipped and made our business kind of API first. And so then in terms of the business model to support that, what we started to understand is people want to have access to our data based on different cities that we have data in or different visibility forwards or backwards or even the amount of categories we had. So it's just a really, really um, super easy uh, you know, business model to understand. API first, tiered, tiered pricing, uh, and you get access to the intelligence you need without a lot of wastage as well. Got it. So then, obviously, how did you go about building the team and, you know, really the initial steps to get this thing out of the ground? Yeah, it's a good, another good question, mate. So um, as soon as I left New Zealand, there was a there's a kind of a leadership vacuum. So I, we still, when I left New Zealand, we had 12 people back there. And so we actually hired a COO really, really early. So I remember meeting up with him. He was actually coming back from the UK as well, a Kiwi guy, um, Richard Bray. We met up in LA. Um, I was two and a half hours late for our meetings. I got stuck in LA traffic. So he was a bit dark. <laughs> he was a bit dark on me when I turned up. He was a bit angry, I should say. Um, but what he's what he enabled me to do is to not worry about um, the the team back in New Zealand, and I could focus on scaling um, the US team over here. And so the way we went about it is we started to put in a really good leadership team um, and people that I knew I could trust, and I could trust that they would grow. And so. Uh, then over here in the US, we started to build out kind of our first leadership role was a VP of sales and then build kind of a GDM team around that. So New Zealand is very focused on R&D, so engineering and, and data science. And over here in the US is is go to market. Um, and, and that's worked extremely well for us, um, I think, in part because um, New Zealanders are very pragmatic in their in their approach to problem solving, and I think the cool thing with Americans and, and go to market is they're very ambitious, but they've done it before and they've seen true scale. So when you fuse those two cultures together, you you kind of get a, a great result. Got it. And obviously, you know, for for the business, you guys have raised quite a bit. How much capital have you guys raised so far? Yeah, I mean, look, it's not it's not it's not massive, but it's it's thirty two million to date. Um, we are you know a super capital efficient business, but I, I think. Um, We've raised at the right time, um, and you know, look, we just we just completed a round um, just before Christmas, which was, I think, what I'm learning to understand is my paranoia is is a is a benefit rather than a curse, and and I had a, I had a lot of paranoia last year that I thought 2020 there was going to be some sort of um, event that would cause um, great instability. I just didn't realize it would be something that we might not see again in our lifetime. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> so. Look, it was it was great, and, and we got on some. Um, you know, we got uh, Sutterhill Ventures came in, and on that round it was a preemptive round. So, um, we're just yeah, we're really lucky, and, and we understand the the position we're in, um, and we're just trying to make sure that we take advantage of that as much as possible, and make sure that we um, we come through this um, just even stronger than if we hadn't have gone through this pandemic. Absolutely, and I think that probably you know on fundraisings, there's some of the best stories, and I know that. One of them involved Flamenco, ACDC, and Madrid. So tell us about this story. <laughs> oh, look, I, look, it was one of my darkest times. Um, it, it actually was my darkest times. Even even um, just personally, I, I, I remember I was in Australia. I'd just been through one of the worst um, worst pitches I've ever done. They absolutely tore me to shreds, and I had to get on a plane for 40 hours and go to Madrid. I remember calling up my wife and going, look, babe, I'm, I'm just done. I'm done. 
I can't do this. This is so brutal. And I thought, no, nah, just just get on that plane and get to Madrid. And I got into Madrid. I had 30 minutes to make it from the um, from the airport to the to the investors' office. And I was going along, and there was this uh, beautiful Spanish flamenco music playing. And I was like, oh, man, I need something else. It'd be great. And I wound down the window, and, and then all of a sudden, um, ACDC Thunderstruck came on. Like the last, <laughs> like because I mean for me, it's a really like it's, it's a track I listened to when I was young, right. <clears throat> and it was just this moment where it just. It was like someone was looking down on me and I was like, oh my God, this is, what is this? <laughs> and I just, I remember, like, honestly, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to admit it, mate. I, I had a tear coming down my, down my cheek and it just changed my whole, my whole outlook. Um, the funny thing is they didn't invest. <laughs> so I went through all that, all that, all that carnage to, to, for them to say, no, we're going to pass. But I do remember that evening and it was really lovely, actually. I was in a tapas bar sat down, <clears throat> had a beer in front of me and I, and I just fell asleep like out cold. And um, I, I might've even been snoring. I don't know, but this lovely English couple next to me uh, woke me up, asked me, you know, how I was. And I just said, oh, look, I don't Cause I couldn't remember where I was, you know, when you wake up from one of those dreams, you're like, yeah. where am I? It was like that, but I was in a tapas <laughs> bar and, um, and that was really kind. And I just said, oh, look, I just got to go back to my hotel room and got back. But look, we were just really lucky on that round that was our seed round that um that we found some really really cool initial investors who were um this is probably a very kiwi australian term but they were very mongrel and they knew what it is to be determined they knew what it was like to get a business from apac over to the us and, and i was just blessed to kind of have some of those people join our journey and um and help us along the way yeah and hey not about Wake up, not to jamón, you know, in a tapas bar. So, <laughs> look, good stuff. I wish I would wake yeah. up like that every day here oh, in, no. in the that'd, US. That'd be, that'd be awesome. <laughs> a nice cold glass of beer. And, and that'd there be, you go. That'd be brilliant. Yeah. There you go. And I know that as well, your A round, you know, was, was pretty strange. So why was it strange? Uh, look, it was strange for a number of reasons. We, um, when we started the round, uh, we were about a day away I don't even know if I've told Teresa this yet, um, who's who's one of our investors in our A round, but we were a day away from getting kicked out of the country. Um, my uh, my wife was a month pregnant, um, and I was having to start this this A round, and it was just brutal. Um, you know, I had very limited network still in in, um, in 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 the Bay Area, but then I was lucky enough to meet a couple of people um, who paid it forward. And were really, really kind to me and introduced me to a number of investors. Um, one of the investors that, you know, we got through to the partnership deal, but they um, they turned us down right at the last moment and said, nah, look, we're, we're, not, we're not into it. And uh, we're not into having kind of a remote, you know, um, uh, set up with people being back in New Zealand and someone being in France and someone being in the US. And I remember going home, ashen face, lying on the couch, thinking like, I don't know how I'm going to pull this round off. And uh, a friend of mine called me up and said, look, can you come present um, to our, my um, MBA class? And I said, yeah. I said, look, mate, I'm really, I'm just not in the mood. I'm broken. And they said, said, just come along. It'll be fine. And I said, nah, not going to do it. As soon as I said that, I felt bad. I called him back up and anyway, went along. And, but he didn't tell me what I'd be doing there. And so what I'd be, so I walked into this room and he goes, great, Campbell's here. He's actually going to do his Series A pitch everyone in the room gets to tear them to shreds and basically say how shit it is. And by the way, we've got three investors who are going to sit up front and they're also going to tear him to shreds. 
So like this is two days after I got out of this partnership meeting where they said no, and I got basically all these people uh, ripping me apart. But it was actually really good because at the end of it, um, Teresa Gao was one of the investors, and she said, look, um, you need to get in my car now. I've called ahead to the partnership, and we're going to have a partnership meeting, and you're going to pitch to everyone in the, in the partnership. And I just said, oh, okay. And so I went from Stanford through into her office in Palo Alto and pitched to her. And then um, I had no idea who Teresa was at the time, and I was pretty naive, but then finally found you know that she's just such an inspirational individual and just a great investor. And so it just made a lot of sense for us. And then we were just lucky enough to have um, – uh, co-investment from Lightspeed Venture Partners as well, and that was kind of a bananas a bananas meeting as well because RF did not want to meet me at all, and he gave me fifteen minute a fifteen minute slot to meet him, and we ended up um, waxing lyrical for about an hour thirty, and uh, and then the next time I went in to meet him, uh, him and his uh, partner walked out of the room at the end of the meeting, and I thought it was over, so I got up, walked out into the car park, called an Uber, and then I heard someone calling out my name, and it was RF. He said, "Where are you going?" I said, "Oh." You guys walked out of the room. I thought you were, I thought you're done with me. He goes, no, 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 no. We're just dis- discussing the deal. We want to co-invest. And then so like within the space of kind of two or three weeks, the whole the whole thing had turned around. So I guess the the narrative of that story, man, is just even when it feels like it's completely over and you can't get up for the next thing, just say yes to that next thing because you just never know where it's going to go. And I think that that has been. You know, really drilled into me now, and that, and that's a bit of scar tissue that I carry with me now, and and I and I love it. I love those sort of things that, that happen in your life. That's amazing because obviously, you know, I was that, that was coming up for me. You know, like to ask you about this because it seems that with this business, I mean, you've gone through really, really difficult times, and you know, like anyone, you know, that is human, you know, like here, I mean, will be like, you know, thinking about giving up, you know, in each one of those <laughs> times. So, so I guess saying. Uh, you know what? What would you say? You know, like to 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 some of the people that are perhaps listening us, you know, listening to this today, listening to what you have to say here, and and maybe you know they're going through one of those times where where they have that voice, you know, in their head, thinking that you know, hey, maybe it's time to give up. You know, what what do you have to tell them? Yeah, I mean, everything everything's a calculated risk, you know, and I, I wouldn't be careless to say, um, you know, keep going no matter what. But I think. To be honest, with you, if you if you truly want to have, if you truly believe in the idea, if you know that this is something that is going to change businesses that you sell to for the better, if you know that you have got a great team behind you, you just you just keep going, and it's it's those things you're going to learn. You learn more about yourself by pushing yourself through a limit. Like I, honestly, myself five years ago would never have pushed themselves as hard as I do today. And I think that's the thing. You just learn the scar tissue just builds and builds and builds and builds. And it brings this level of, um, I guess, clarity in times of absolute chaos that uh, is kind of something that I don't think I would have been able to ever get if I didn't go through the situation. So just sticking it out is something so critical. And it's such a basic um, a basic approach to things, but I think it, it pays off immensely now and in the future as well. Absolutely. So then... Uh, where do you see the um, the space as a whole? Cam, where where do you see the space really heading? Yeah, look, I think the big thing for this, mate, is we see the accuracy of the predictions that we help to um, create just continually to exponentially get smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter, which effectively for us means that it unlocks kind of decision-making in an automated fashion at real scale. So I think people talk about all... I didn't want to say the term AI, but I think 
things are getting smarter and smarter and they are learning and learning and learning. I think for us, we're part of that fuel line. So we are feeding our intelligence into a lot of these different decision-making processes, some of them manual, some of them automated. And I just see this getting smarter and smarter to a point where these it starts to take over more and more decisions within within business logic. Now that is good from a point of view that allows businesses to scale faster as well. And it allows them to drive more efficiencies, um, which I think is super important. Um, And I think just in terms of the industry is, the other thing is, is we're kind of creating the category as well. And that seems a little bit scary for some people, but um, demand intelligence, which is the category we, you know, we have kind of coined is, is still really in its infancy. And I think a lot of people have approached understanding demand in a very um, uh, in a very systematic fashion, and it doesn't actually work because demand is super fluid and it's impacted. And I think the key thing for that is that we're kind of we're taking that kind of trading mentality to the masses. So all that mentality that we're, we're kind of bringing um, the trading mentality to the masses. And, and what I mean by that is. Um, traders for years have been able to understand and manipulate things in an automated fashion and and businesses should have that accessibility to understanding those sort of catalysts that are impacting their demand as well and so it's a um look we we want to predict the catalyst behind any form of demand whether it's a you know a school holiday whether it's a attended event whether it's a non-attended event like a um you know like a shelter in place being lifted whatever catalyst has caused an increase or a decrease in demand, we want to tell you why. And we want to tell you why before it happens. And we want to help you predict if, if you see these events coming in the future, what should your business do? What are the decisions we should take today to make sure that we're, be, we're best suited or we're either mitigating or manipulating or ma- uh, you know making most of the situation? Got it. And, and what's the size of the business today? I mean, how many employees do you guys have to give us an idea of, of how big you guys are? Yeah, so there's there's 70 of us uh, at the moment. So there's around 50 of us in New Zealand and, and 20 in um, the US with about, uh, and we've got a couple of people scattered around the world in Belgium and France, et cetera. So it's probably around 72, 73. Got it. And and I guess, you know, like if, um, you know, because it's amazing, I mean, your your journey, I mean, what you've gone through and, and also your different experiences. If you had the chance to go back in time, come and, and give, your, give yourself one piece of business advice before launching your, your first business, you know, like what, knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice that you give to your younger self and, and why? Yeah, it's pretty clear, man. It's like culture is not an afterthought. Like culture is what makes a difference between having a company and being a great company, if that makes sense. Like when I was young, I didn't, I, I, I didn't give a shit about culture. And um, to me, culture got in the way of building a great company. But what I didn't realize is, if you build great culture, that helps you to build a great company because the people that are with you on that journey believe in what you're doing. They will be with you in the tough times. They'll be with you in the good times. And I think that's something that younger people, I think probably get actually more now than when, when I was, when I was in my twenties, you know, I didn't fully appreciate culture, but now I just see it's so tangible. It's so, uh, it's just so useful in terms of being cognizant of it. And I think that kind of speaks back to when I talk about scar tissue made is, a lot of the values that this business, have, well, all the values that have been this business have been built on, have been built on scar tissue. So not just sitting on a whiteboard going like, "Yeah, we want to be the best we can be," or "We want to." It's like yeah. these are the things that are very deeply personal to us, and and we've shared those with those people, and and that's kind of how our culture is is kind of evolved into something that we we really cherish at the moment. 
That's amazing. So for the folks that are listening, Cam, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can reach out and say hi to me either on Twitter at Campbell B. Um, my DMs are open or you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, and if you want to visit the site, it's predicthq.com. Amazing. Well, Cam, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.